Good to see everybody that's here today. Uh, and we do want to uh, encourage you as we continue our uh, journey or path through the book of Numbers to follow us in your Bibles, especially today because we're going to read a significant portion of it uh, this morning. I think about, um, it's not our normal habit to read this much together, but it's not really that acultural. Uh, if an author today uh, you know, is going to be at Barnes & Noble or something like that, launching their new book, they might read an entire chapter of their book and people go up. Not only do they listen to them read their chapter, they stand in a long line with the freshly purchased copy of the book and seek their signature in the front of it. And I think if people can do that for random human authors, we can sit together and read a larger portion of God's holy word together. And we're going to do that in the book of Numbers. Would you turn there? And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use your phone or if you have a tablet, uh, you can pull one up there. If you don't own a Bible, please talk to one of us. We will give you one to keep. Uh, but this is, think of it kind of like a book club where you get together with other people to talk about a book and how awkward it would be to show up and just listen to other people talk about it, but you don't have the book in your hand. It would be hard to follow along. So that's not to condemn anybody. That's just to encourage you. That's what we're about here. Uh, The purpose here is not to listen to my thoughts, but to listen to God's holy word. So um, make sure to bring... Uh, some copy, electronic or paper, of God's Word together. So let's pray, and then we will dive in for today's message from God's Word. Father, it it would be so easy for this to just be uh, a time that we spend and not allowing you to allow it to have its full effect in us, Father. We invite you, we ask you... uh, to be here in a special way, to minister to our hearts, to open our minds, to grasp what you're saying in your word, and to do the work that it takes uh, to change us through it, to use this passage to conform us to Christ, to prepare us for living for Christ in this world, as difficult as that might get. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It is no secret to to most of you that uh, Christians, as much as Christians agree on many things, solid, evangelical, conservative, biblically sound Christians still have areas of, of disagreement. And one of those areas is how it's going to go in the world. How it's going to go in the world. And, you know... We use big words for that, eschatology, the study of last things, how are things going to wrap up. And you've got several different camps. You can take those different camps and divide them in two basic groups. So there's different ways to divide them, but I'm dividing it this way because I've got the pulpit this morning. So, uh, uh, and, and, and you may not know, the, be familiar with the terminology, uh, but typically these camps are broken up into how they view the millennium. And so you've got pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and all these different positions. Let me try to simplify at least one difference between a portion of these Christians and these churches. And our church does not take an official stance on this position, by the way. 
But I could, I could bet most of you aren't in this camp here, the post-mill group, and I don't, I'm not going to define the term, but basically there's a view that as the kingdom of God expands in this world, we will influence politics, influence schools, influence people, influence military, and the more people get saved, the more people get converted, the more majority position Christianity will be until eventually we are just on the cusp of taking over the world. And at that point, Jesus returns and he's like, good job, church, and he sits on his throne. That means opposition to the church will be less and less as we go. Now, all those other positions we've talked about, they all agree, as much as they disagree on other things, they all agree that that's not right. I'm not saying for sure post-millennium these guys are, are wrong, but most preachers, pastors that probably you read and listen to are in this camp here where they go, as the world, as history continues, opposition to the church will not be lessened, but will increase. I mean, it's either going to stay static or get worse, but probably get worse. And what we've seen under Nero and all that stuff, those are patterns that keep revolving throughout history and the things will get worse. Now, here's what's interesting. When these two sides debate, this side tends to point to the fact that the world is advancing, right? We have, because of technology and advancements, there's not as much sickness as there was in the past. Uh, many diseases that would for sure kill people in the past don't kill people now. See, the world is getting better. It is getting better. And the reason why the two sides keep talking past each other is because this side is not saying we're not getting technologically better. They're just saying even though we're mitigating against diseases, even though we know things that we didn't know before, of course, man, because we've been uh, endowed with ingenuity and creativity, right? We have resources. We can, you know, combat diseases and viruses and all that kind of stuff. We're not saying that. We're just saying as we do that, the world becomes cockier, and they see as they are able to conquer things, they see themselves being able to do it, and they see the need for God less, and therefore they push against God in greater ways. And how do they push against God? They push against His people, and they push against the church. And so this side is very optimistic. Things will get better. This side is like, it looked like things were going to get better, in some nations where Christianity became the norm, and as soon as Christianity became the norm, things went south pretty fast. As soon as Christianity and government get together, things go south. Why? Because this opposition to God's people is a pattern that we see through Scripture and that we're going to experience going forward. I'm in this group. I think when we see opposition to God's people, that's showing us how to live in the face of opposition. We should not expect that if you just vote in the right candidate, if you just educate the next generation the right way, if you can just fix the political things, the ideologies that are wrong, if you can just have conservatism win, the world will get better and lay off of Christians. I, I don't think that's true. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't live out there and, and be, we are supposed to be light in this darkness, but the darkness hates light. And what we're going to see in this particular episode in the book of Numbers is how there's opposition to God's people, 
And oftentimes that opposition tries to use God to oppose God's own people. Now when I say God's own people, I mean real Israel. And I don't know if I've unpacked this clearly enough, or, you know, mostly through the book of Numbers, and I haven't been clear enough on how I do this. Uh, some people say what we see with the people of Israel, they're sort of a separate people of God, but what we see is God operates the same way with the church. I think God is operating with people that trust his promise of salvation. Right? So when I say God's people, there's two groups. The people who trust him for his salvation, trust his, trust his promise of the Messiah, and all those who hate them for it. And sometimes those people rise up within the camp and he has to eliminate them, right? The earth swallows them up, he, he kills them on the spot, or he has other Israelites do it. But there's the people who cling to God's promise in the Messiah and then everybody else who opposes that. And so we're not taking the book of Numbers and just like jamming it into our lives. This is your life. If you follow God and you're in covenant relationship with Him by placing your faith in this Messiah that He's provided, the world will hate you for it. And not only will the world hate you for it, it's not always going to come in the form of atheism. It's not always going to come in the form of people that go, your religion is so stupid. What they're going to do is say, your religion, you've got it wrong. God is actually on our side. You're wrong. And we see that particularly in this episode Turn with me, please, to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. And as we look at this passage, uh, there's some humor in it. Uh, It is weird. It's ironic. Uh, But we're going to read 22, 23, and 24. Three chapters. And I'm going to read it straight through. I might drop in a couple comments here and there if I feel like maybe something should be clarified just to kind of help us along. But I'm not going to pause for long exposition. We'll just kind of move through. Uh, I'm reading, of course, from the ESV. But follow along in whatever translation you have or that you're used to. And we'll start in chapter 22, verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So just very quickly, Balak, this Moabite king is scared of the Israelite people, calls on Balaam, and you might be like, well, Balaam, he's not part of the Israelite group, but he has, strangely, some access to God. And he's spoken for God before, apparently. So he's asking, Balak is asking Balaam to curse the Israelites on God's behalf so that the Israelites uh, don't oppose him. Verse 7, 
So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I will be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the prince's of Moab. Verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants with him, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? I'm not going to do a donkey voice. but (laughs) What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Aw. (laughs) is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, 
For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriathuzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. Now remember, Balak is paying Balaam to curse Israel, and this is what comes out. Verse 7, And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains, Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or, the num- or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his." Verse 11, and Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see a fraction of them, and you shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? And here's his second oracle. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought 
Behold, a people, a lioness, it ri- as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain, i.e., they're going to kill you. <laughs> Verse 25, and Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. <laughs> In other words, okay, I realize the cursing thing isn't a work, but every time I do this, it backfires and you're actually blessing them. Just forget it. How about neither? Verse 26, but Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each other, uh, on each altar. Chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, here's the third oracle, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. As you can imagine, Balak didn't like it. Verse 10, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. Verse 12, and Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Now the fourth and final oracle, Balak didn't ask for it, but he's going to get it anyway. Verse 15, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on 
Amalek and took up discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Ketim and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. So he recruits Balaam to curse Israel. He blesses Israel, and then it culminates in the fourth and final oracle where not only does he bless Israel, he blesses Israel to crush everybody else. In other words, as much as God's people are going to be opposed or are opposed in this passage and throughout history, uh, God's victory is sure. And opposition just makes his victory that much more glorious and emphatic. And so, of course, this opposition backfires on Balak as he tries to use Balaam. I just want to point out a few things, and we'll bring out some application for us. But one of the things you see repeated as you read through is this constant insistence that Balaam is only able to say what the Lord says. You see that? The Lord tells him what to do in chapter 22, verse 12. And you see this repeated emphasis that he is to say only what the Lord says, or he is only able to say what the Lord says in chapter 22, verse 20. And then in verse 35, chapter 23, verses 3 and 12, you see it again. Also chapter 23, verses 17 and 26. And then you see it again in chapter 24, verse 2, and especially in verse 13. That's nine different times where it's emphasized God tells Balaam what to say and Balaam only says what God says, say. Now when you read it looks like Balak is the bad guy and Balaam's kind of, you know, he's a good guy. He's, he's not saying anything opposite from the, what the Lord is saying. He's, he's speaking what the Lord says to speak and you have this opposition sort of between Balak and Balaam and it's a kind of good guy, bad guy. The problem there is when you read all the rest of Scripture, now on your own time, if you want to nerd out just a little bit, or only take a couple minutes, if you have any kind of concordance or Bible search app with a little magnifying glass and you can search words in the Bible, type in Balaam and see what other Scripture authors say about Balaam. It's always negative. In other words, the person that goes down in history as the bad guy isn't Balak so much as it is Balaam. You see that in the end of Numbers, actually. You don't even leave the book of Numbers before you see that they see them as a bad guy in chapter 31, verses 8 to 16. He's a bad guy in Deuteronomy 23, 4 to 5. And three times in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, 15 and Jude 11, both say that uh, Balaam did wrongdoing for gain. The whole reason why he's doing this is because he's offered money. And he's hoping one of these oracles will fit the deal that he struck with Balak. Why? Because he's invested in the battle? Because he wants the Amalekites to win? No, 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 no. He's for Moab? No, he doesn't care. He wants that silver and gold. So when you see him going, didn't I tell you I can only say what the Lord says? He's not saying it, proclaiming, I only speak truth. He's saying it frustrating. He's frustrated by it. Oh, I I know, I, I did the altars. I'm trying to convince God. I'm trying to stand there and curse the people. I like the silver and gold. In the past, I've taken silver and gold from you, we can presume, 
This is why Balak is frustrated. I thought this is how it works. I pay you, and then you do some cursing deal. And he's like, oh, I tried, but I can't. See, he tried, and that's why he's an enemy of Israel. Even though he's supposedly a prophet, and strangely, he does have some connection to God. God does speak with him. In Revelation chapter 2, he comes out again in those letters to the seven churches. And there Jesus himself makes it clear that actually Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of Israel. The other way around. If we read this passage, we go, hey, Balak is trying to get Balaam to put a stumbling block in front of Israel. And then when you read Jesus' own words in Revelation 2, Jesus is saying, no, 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 Balaam taught Balak how to do that stuff. Maybe not in this instance, but that's what, that was their relationship. One of them had money and power and authority. The other one had some divination, magical thing, supposedly a connection with the Lord. And Balaam was used to this pattern. Hey, I'll pay you, I'll give you what you want, and you say that the Lord says this. If that sounds crazy, we'll get to some application in a minute, and I think you, with me, will realize that's not that crazy. (laughs) This happens all the time. And so what looks like Balaam may be a good guy or maybe a neutral figure, he really isn't. And in fact, when he, as a supposed prophet, accepts fees for divination, that is directly in contradiction of the word of God. It's an abominable practice. You can see that in chapter 22, verse 7. He resorts, he resorts to omens in chapter 24, verse 1. That omen-seeking is not a prophet of God MO. That's demonic stuff. So he, he's not a good guy. And he does things that the Bible consistently condemns with his divination. He's, he's combining sort of witchcraft with uh, God's word. And then the last reason why you know Balaam is not a good guy is the whole donkey scene. Right? Now, interestingly, you can take this and go, see, this is why we shouldn't beat our animals. And that's, I don't think that's untrue. But the donkey speaks up and says, why are you beating me? Not because it's wrong to strike the animal, because you're not seeing what I'm seeing, right? I wouldn't be acting this way. I've never acted this way before. You've been riding me since you were a little kid or whatever. (laughs) We have a history, and I always walk straight. That's why you always choose me. Of the stable of donkeys that are available, you always choose me because I walk straight. I get you there the fastest. And if I'm acting crazy like this, you should know something is up. You don't know something is up because you were more blind than a donkey. And just like God speaks through the donkey, even though the donkey is not really a prophet, God speaks through Balaam, even though Balaam is not actually a prophet. See? The donkey is a picture of Balaam, but in the way that the donkey is better than Balaam because the donkey can see what Balaam can't see. And then when the angel of the Lord is revealed to Balaam, now Balaam can see why the donkey was acting crazy. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were in opposition to me. You didn't? You are on your way to try to curse Israel. And you know they're my people. So you are on your way to oppose me. That's why when God first gives him permission to go, and he, before he, just before he gets on the donkey, and then the verse says, and God's anger was kindled toward him that he went. 
I don't know about you, when we read it, when I was reading that earlier this week, I thought, why would God say, go ahead, and then get angry that he's going ahead? Well, because God is using his permissive will to allow Balaam to do what he already wants to do. Balaam wants the money to curse Israel. And so God allows him to do it and then opposes him. So that's basically God's way of going, go ahead. You, you want to do this? Go ahead. I'm going to fight you on this. I'm going to oppose you. And so he opposes him. He's not angry at Balaam because he told Balaam to do something like it was God's idea. It was Balaam's idea. This is the kind of practice that Balaam already taught Balak. And he's like, you like this pattern? I'm going to show you how this pattern is not going to work. And I'm going to use your dumb donkey to show you up. So that's what's happening in this passage of God not approving what Balaam is doing. Balaam is not God's prophet. It doesn't matter how magical it may seem. It doesn't matter how many powerful figures prop him up. It doesn't matter how many subscribers he has on his ancient YouTube channel. Right? It's not popularity. God doesn't look at popularity. He doesn't look at power. He doesn't look at authority. He doesn't look at how well-spoken somebody is or how, powerfully pe- or how powerful people perceive someone to be. The irony of the story is that God uses him to actually speak truth by taking over. Balaam can only say what God says say. But Balaam didn't want to say what God wanted to say, and that's why he's a bad guy all across the Bible. And so when you see his oracles, he's got four of them. The things that Balak wanted Balaam to do It's not just that they don't work, they backfire, right? The opposite of what they wanted to do happens. Now think about the history of God's people. God, the church, tends to explode and expand, not in places where they're allowed to do stuff, but in places where they're not allowed to do stuff. And I think that's true not only here, As it backfires, these four oracles, all they do is reaffirm what God is going to do through his people. And I don't know, when you watch the news and you see how the world is going, or your kids come home and they tell you about some new curriculum that the teachers are teaching them, and it seems like the world is going backwards, and it seems like the world is getting darker, and every election cycle you're like, bad guy or badder guy? you might feel tempted to be discouraged because you feel like the church is going to be snuffed out, the church is going to be dwindled. Brothers and sisters, maybe what we need is some heat for the opposition's plans to backfire. It's when we're comfortable and everybody's cool with each other that the church starts to kind of dwindle down. But God uses opposition to make that opposition backfire. It's when heat comes on that God shows what he's doing in his program. All four oracles reaffirm God's promises to his people. In the first oracle, he talks about Israel's special relationship with God and that they're going to be this great population. You can't kill them. You can't snuff them out. No matter what you do to them, they're going to be so populous. You can't count them. In the second oracle, Israel's special covenant relationship with the Lord is emphasized. In the third oracle, It emphasized that Israel is shortly going to enjoy peace and prosperity in the land of promise. And then, of course, that final and fourth oracle that Balak didn't ask for, but he got it anyway. 
describes an Israelite king, doesn't it? An Israelite king who's going to come and put down those surrounding nations, fulfilling that patriarchal promise of prosperity and victory. And of course, the immediate fulfillment of that is probably David, who rises to that physical, literal Israelite throne. But through David, we get the ultimate conqueror who ultimately crushes the head of all competition, of all opposition. So these promises are tied to the promise of the Messiah Christ who takes that throne, who takes that scepter and broadens it to graft in people from all over the place. So that today the church doesn't take over by killing people with swords. We take over through baptizing people into our team. (laughs) And the more the world hates that we do that, the more that happens. And so over time, we see that Christ ultimately fulfills this promise, of, uh, this promise that he originally gave to Abraham, this promise that subsumes not only Israel, but all those who are grafted in. And when God's enemies seek to oppose God's people, no matter how much they do it, and when they use God to misrepresent God, and that's what's happening here, the Lord will hold to his promise of victory. Now think about these two characters. One of them, Balak, he's seeking to turn God's people against his own covenant people. And he wants to use someone that he knows is in connection with the Lord in order to do it. He's not really a, a, he's not a follower of Yahweh. He doesn't care about Yahweh, but he's going to grab somebody that he thinks has Yahweh in his pocket. Well, if I've got him in my pocket and he's got Yahweh in his pocket, I can tell Yahweh what to do. And I can sort of derail this plan that he's talking about. When I think of people today who grasp for power, and grasp for influence and authority in our own nation and try to use God's own word to oppose the church. Think about that. If your eyes have been peeled, just half, you'll see politicians campaigning on the back of Bible verses to promote the opposite of what the Bible teaches. That is why this doesn't stay in the past. Oh, what a weird episode. No, what a repeated episode. Now Secretary Pete Buttigieg, when he was campaigning as a, as, in the Democratic primary, he was featured in a Rolling Stones article, so you know it's legit. The article was called The Generous Gospel of Mayor Pete. He, he was the mayor of uh, uh, South Bend, Indiana. And in the article, he explained that his being gay is not his choice, it's his, creator. it's his creator's choice. And by creator, he means the Bible, the God of the Bible. The article notes that he references the Bible with fluency. And in the article, in that interview, he says, quote, there are so many parts of the Bible, end quote, that serve as a, quote, plenty of scriptural basis, end quote, to reach a pro-choice conclusion. That's my summary. In other words, he talks about verses. Supposedly, there are verses that associate the beginning of life with breath. So he's saying the Bible teaches life doesn't begin until the breath is drawn. Now, interestingly, he doesn't supply those verses. He just says it to the Rolling Stones person who doesn't know any different. And just, oh yeah, there's plenty of verses that say that life doesn't start until outside the womb. Is that right? 
So to use God's word to say and promote the opposite of what God says so that people come along and go, yeah, the Bible is cool. God is cool. God is on our side. God is in our pocket. And he's not. That is a fearful thing. It's different if somebody candidates saying, look, I'm atheist. I think the whole God thing is stupid. Not getting a lot of that. The strategy is if I can convince Christians that I'm Christian and that actually they've been reading the Bible wrong the whole time, maybe instead of following Moses, they'll follow Balaam. And then we can get Israel on our agenda. We can get Christians in our agenda. That's why we emphasize reading your Bibles. That's why I took a couple minutes. Grab your Bible and open it. Don't just listen to me. You need to know what the Bible says so when this kind of stuff comes up, you can tell the difference between a Balaam and a Moses. Another quick example, Senator Cory Booker, he's got tons of gems, but anyway, uh, he quoted Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And he uses that, think about that, he's quoting Micah, an Old Testament prophet, and he says what that verse is helping us to understand is we need to defend LGBT rights. Now imagine Cory Booker saying that if Micah were sitting right there in front of him. All you have to do is turn a couple pages in the Bible and see, yeah, that's not what Micah meant. We're not talking about loving people in general. But that's not what what Cory Booker's talking about. He's not talking about in general loving people. He's talking about the agenda that is contrary to what Scripture says about certain sexual practices. It is clear. That is why in... uh, Buttigieg's interview, just before saying what he said about abortion, he said, and I quote, there are so many things in Scripture that are inconsistent internally, and you've got to decide what sense to make of it. So what what he's saying, the Bible contradicts itself all over the place, so you've got to kind of pick and choose which ones make sense. Make sense to whom? To Balaam? To Balak? Whose agenda controls which ones to choose and which ones not to choose? It is a twisting of Scripture to try to get Christians to believe that they're on your side. Now look, I don't want you, I had to throw this in here because I don't want you to think like, wow, I, I guess we just need to vote Republican. It's not about a party. You think Trump surrounded himself with people that I would ask you to wow, follow their YouTubes, those spiritual advisors. No, thank you. No, thank you. Paula White should not be advising anybody. And all I need you to do is go YouTube her for 10 minutes. So this is not about Republicans and Democrats. This is about the the practice of people in power using God's word to try to get people to think, see, God is on my side and he's not on your side. It is a mishandling of God's word. Well, the politicians remind me of Balak. Balaam keeps cropping up today when you've got people, politicians don't claim to be Bible experts, they don't claim to be preachers, they don't claim to be uh, people who are competent to handle the Bible, they've got quotes here and there. But the Balaams of today are the people who do claim that. They do claim to be preachers and they do claim to study God's word and they have large congregations and huge YouTube channels or they're televangelists. 
And they don't handle God's word responsibly at all. They handle God's word in a way that advances their agenda, and usually that agenda is tied up with a house full of gold and silver. So as we think about uh, the Balaams of today, Balaam was reluctantly forced to speak God's truth, but plenty of people are like Balaam in their hearts. You've got celebrity pastors who amass wealth and notoriety, and the way they do that is by adjusting God's words to say what itching ears want to hear instead of saying what God says, say. And when you point your attention to the local church, I'll just wrap up with this. Those of us in the congregation that are especially tasked with handling God's word, elders, growth group leaders, disciplers, parents, we need to make sure that we're speaking for God and we need to adhere to the same principle. You don't look to say what people want to hear. You don't look to say what your friends want to hear, what your neighbor wants to hear, what your kids want to hear. And you don't adjust what you say based on gifts and benefits. See, I know if I just skip numbers 22 to 24, I might not tick off some people on Sunday morning. I don't like rubbing against what I know people would like to hear. That's not my favorite thing. But I would hate to stand up here and say something that's pleasing, say something that's soothing, fist bump everybody, everyone gets a trophy, and then I've got to go home and deal with a holy, righteous God who told me to say what he says say. And that's not just the preacher's responsibility, that's the responsibility of every Christian who's tasked with handling God's word. And so when you have opportunities to learn, when you've got opportunities to learn the Bible a little bit better, jump on those opportunities. There's Christians all over the world that put us to shame, and they don't even have Bibles. Or the Bible hasn't been translated in their language yet. Or they only have the New Testament. Or they only have like John. And we have so much access to God's word. And some of us can quote sports stats better than we can remember who in the world Balak was. Now, I don't have all of it memorized, but, and I don't expect everybody to go out there and get seminary degrees or anything like that. But the charge is to handle Scripture responsibly. And you don't handle Scripture responsibly just on your own. We need each other. That's why we meet together and talk about Scripture together. So if you're not plugged into a growth group, what group are you plugged into? When do you get together with other people to look at God's words and go, hey, am I handling this right? I don't want to get this wrong. Am I reading this right? If you don't have that in your life, it doesn't matter if it's an official growth group and CFC's calendar. You've got to get together, hopefully with other CFCers, for that task. For that task. We don't roll out growth groups because we're trying to make the church big and we're trying to do this church growth thing. We want you to be served and we want you to serve other people. We teach one another, as Paul tells the Romans. So it goes for all of us when we're talking to people about the Bible that aren't believers, evangelism, where we're helping other believers grow, discipleship, If you ever move on from CFC, you move somewhere else or whatever happens and you're trying to find the church, how do you know that church is handling God's word appropriately? You have to be a Berean and read it for yourself. That's the only way we will be able to stand against the opposition that I don't think is going away. 
but we can cling to God's promise. If we stay in His Word and we stick to what He says, really there is no competition and there is no opposition because it will always backfire ultimately. And we'll be the ones saved in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise that our success and our victory in Christ is not dependent upon how good we are at things or our own gifting and our own resources, but instead this scepter that came out of Israel, this king who was his promised king, the king of Psalm 2, that the nations cannot crush. Lord, we worship him this morning. And we pray that as we do that, we would be able to bring in others who are still on the wrong side of your truth. Help us to be true prophets. Help us to be true priests out there. And connect people to what you actually say. What their problem really is. And what the solution truly is in Christ Jesus. His death and atoning work on the cross. His resurrection to bring us into new life so we can walk with you. As we close in this song, Lord, we want to thank you for it. And we want to leave here knowing that all glory, all honor, all praise belongs to you who secures victory in Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close in a song?